At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. As we open up the word, would you just pray with me as we lift these things up to the Lord together? Father, we do want to thank you that you knew us before we were even formed in the womb. The Father, you chose us before the foundations of the world were established that we would be recipients of salvation through Jesus Christ. What an unspeakable gift. And so, Father, we know that all of humanity created in your image is valuable. And Father, we want to be champions for human life at every stage, every season. Father, help us to be voices. Father, for those who need protected. Lord, I pray that you would act through us and that through us, Father, many lives would be saved and many would come to know your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for those who might have the pain of some of these issues in their past, Father, that you would come alongside of them and teach them and remind them of the grace that is theirs through faith in Christ. Father, now today as we open up your word, would you give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear all that you want to say to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4 as we continue our series on the forgotten virtue, learning to love again. I'm so grateful to be with you this morning and certainly to be with all of you who are joining us online. And I want to begin by saying our cultural moment, this season of society, has exposed how people personally define love. And it won't be a surprise to hear that not everyone's definition of love turns out to be the same. It's almost like the world is playing balderdash with this word. Everybody has a different perspective. Everybody has a different action associated with it. Everybody has a different uh, way to describe this concept. So just a few places that I think we can all understand or at least see around us. How many times has love been the motivation for violence? How many times has love been the justification for hatred? How many times has love been the excuse for sin? Did you know it's possible to be full of love and full of godlessness at the same time? See, the thing is, how is that possible? It's by loving the wrong things, by loving the wrong way, by loving in the wrong order. So the thing that the Lord has been impressing upon my heart as we've been working through this series is that love misapplied is love misunderstood. Love misapplied is love misunderstood. And if we misunderstand love, if we don't define love properly, then we misunderstand God because God is Love. Now think about it. Does godly love throw sticks and stones? That's love misapplied. That's love misunderstood. Does godly love mock and belittle in conversation and all over social media? That's love misapplied. That's love misunderstood. Does godly love look out for self-interests? No. Is godly love always tolerant? No. Does godly love only encourage and never challenge? No. 
That's love misapplied. That's love misunderstood. So last week we were reminded that the author of this letter in 1 John is the disciple of Jesus. And John's nickname, along with his brother James, do you remember what Pastor Chris mentioned that it was? He was called a son of thunder, not Thor. A son of thunder predates Marvel comic books. Not to be confused with him. So in Luke 9, it tells us, and Pastor Chris brought this out, that out of his love, this is the irony, that out of his love for God and his allegiance to Jesus, John wanted judgment to rain down on a Samaritan village because they rejected Jesus. He said, Lord, these people, they hate your truth. So we must retaliate. That's the appropriate response. And Jesus, of course, turns aside, him aside and rebukes him because his love was misapplied. His love was misunderstood. But over time, after decades of following Jesus, John ends up with a very different nickname. He moves from a son of thunder to the apostle of love. And it makes a lot of sense when we read through his letters. Pastor Chris talked about how many times the word is used in this particular letter, over 40, in just a few chapters in his gospel. It's used 57 times, which is more than all three other gospels combined. And of course, we know his most famous passage of all, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And he eventually figured out that the world that God so loved included those Samaritans that he used to hate. How did a son of thunder become an apostle of love? We asked the question last week. Let me turn the question this week on you. What would have been your nickname prior to Christ? What, have been, what would have been that condition in you that would have defined your personality? Would you have been called perhaps a son of anger? How did a son of anger become a disciple of love? How did a daughter of insecurity become a disciple of love? How did a son of arrogance become a disciple of love? How did a, da a daughter of resentment become a disciple of love? The answer is through understanding and encountering God's love. We must not allow love to be defined by the ideologies of the world. They're all over the place. Love properly defined is based upon the theology of a triune person. And that's what John brings out today. This is the hope for change in your life. There is hope for change in this world. It's when we encounter God's love, when we properly understand God's love. Jesus, in fact, love personified is love defined. He is love understood. He is the imago Amor. He's the image of love. He is love applied. He is love crucified. He is love personified. Now, John's letter is profoundly simple, but it's also unbelievably challenging. And so today it's going to help us answer a question I think that every human being asks, and that is, how do I understand and encounter God's love? How do I understand it? How do I encounter it? If it's going to change me, if it has the power to change me, I want to understand it properly and experience it myself. And John gives us a beautifully Trinitarian answer to this question. He starts with the Father. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves 
has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love begins with the Father. Here in verse seven, there's a pattern that John repeats and really you find this pattern all throughout scripture and I'm gonna take some time just to teach you for a moment this beautiful pattern that we find here because it's so very important. Now what he does is he makes a statement first about our identity. He says, beloved. That's a statement about our identity, who we are. And then he follows that up with a command, love one another. And the rest of verse seven, really through our text today, through verse 12, gives us the rationale behind that command and the purpose behind that command. So let's go back to the first word because I want you to see this pattern. Beloved, this kind of statement grammatically is called an indicative. If you like to take notes, it's a good thing to write down. It's called an indicative. It's a statement of fact. And John is stating a fact about who Christians are. Then John tells Christians, based upon who they are, what they are to do. He gives a command. Command are called imperatives. So I'm going to give you a $5 seminary principle. It probably cost me a whole lot more money than that. But it's worth writing down. It's worth thinking about and reflecting upon. It's this. Moral imperatives are always connected to redemptive indicatives. That's a mouthful, but let me explain. I'll just illustrate with something we can all relate to, whether you're a child, a parent, or a grandparent. Let me talk about parents. What we typically do in our conversation and motivation with one another is go straight to the command. So if I was gonna think about my oldest daughter, Leah, she's 14, it would be a conversation that went something like this. Leah, you lied to me. The Bible says do not lie. So stop it. Does that work like ever with us, with our kids? Does that approach bring transformation? I, if only it was that easy. If only it was easy to call out a sin in someone or an issue with someone and say, the Bible says, do not do this, so stop doing it. And it's like, okay, she's now honest Abe, never lies again in her life. It's just not that simple, why? because we haven't dealt with the deeper issue. The depravity in us is not just skin deep, it's soul deep. And to work on the soul, the foundational parts of who we are, you have to offer things that the soul needs, like relationship and love. So just telling your flesh to stop it never works. Willpower eventually proves to be powerless despite all the way that our culture sells that message. When you read the Bible, you'll see that before it tells us what to do, the Bible always tells us who we are. So that's the indicative before the imperative. Because who you believe you are shapes how you end up living. Let me go back to the conversation. Try it a different way, try it a biblical way. Try it the way that John brings out in the text. Leah, you lied. You are my daughter. I love you. Nothing will ever change that. Be who you are. Do you sense the difference? 
Do you see what happens when we talk about a fact, an unchangeable fact of who we are, and then use that as motivation to talk about how we are to live? That is how we're motivated by the gospel in the word of God. And that is exactly what John is doing here. And so who does John say that we are in verse seven? He calls us beloved, loved by John, certainly. Certainly it was, he meant that. John was the pastor of the church in Ephesus and this letter was sent to the Ephesians along with all the churches in that surrounding region. John would have been considered the spiritual leader of those churches and certainly by extension, he has leadership, spiritual leadership of ours as well. But more importantly, more than John's love, through faith in Christ, you are the beloved of God. And it's something we hear every week. And quite frankly, it's something that we should remind ourselves of every single day. Because this is the fact about our relationship with him that becomes the motivation for how we live. You are loved by the one who is in himself, according to John here, love. The love that is from God made its way to you. Love doesn't go from us to him. Love starts with him. More than that, notice what John is saying here. It does more than make its way to you. He says it makes its way into you. It it becomes part of us. His love is forming us. It's creating us. And John says that if you love in a godly way, then you have been born of God. You are a child of God and you know God. So John says, Christian, God's love found you. It made itself known to you. It made its way into you. And when it comes out of you, it is the demonstration of the fact that you are his child and know him as father. That's what he's after here. Now the word John uses for love is the highest word within the Greek language at the time. It was agape love, not just sensory love, brotherly love, emotional love. Uh, love that comes and goes, a feeling we fall in and out of. No, it's not that at all. I've heard it put this way. Feelings come to us. Agape, that type of love comes from us. Feelings are passive and receptive. Agape is active and creative. Feelings are instinctive. Agape is chosen. We fall in love, but we do not fall into agape. Beloved, God's agape chose you. I mean, just meditating upon that fact will absolutely break us down. And then comes the challenge as he identifies who we are. If you do not love one another, then you do not know God. Why? Because God is love. Love is not God. That is love misunderstood. That is love misapplied but God is love. We might hurry past this little sentence and maybe even misinterpret it, but we don't want to miss it. Sometimes we might mistranslate this little sentence and replace it with God loves, but God loves and God is love are two very different things. One theologian reminded me as I was studying this passage this week that we can't treat this verse, this phrase, like other statements such as God creates or God rules or even God judges. 
To say God is love implies that everything he does, all his activity is loving activity. So as he creates, he creates through love. As he rules, he rules in love. As he judges, he judges in love. Everything he does is an expression of his nature, which is love. Now maybe you're thinking, if God is so full of love, the Father is so full of love, then why is the world so full of hatred? Maybe privately you've thought, I don't buy it. I don't buy that God is full of love, that that's fully in his nature because that's not what I feel like I've experienced. So God, prove it. Prove that you are love. And he did, and he has. That's exactly where John moves in the next verse. That's where he goes. How do I understand and encounter God's love by understanding that begins with the Father, it comes from the Father, and it is personified in his Son. Look at verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest, that means made known among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation means a sacrifice that bears or appeases or pacifies God's wrath and turns it to favor. So he's saying Jesus is the visible representation of God's love for his people. So the son was sent by the father to bring life through his loving sacrifice when we deserved death because of our rebellious selfishness. So this is what love looks like. You wanna know what love looks like? You wanna know how to properly define it? John gives us to it, empowered by the Spirit, right here. This is what the Father does. He sent, the word is used there, he sent his only Son. There is only one God and only one Son, and this Father sent his only Son. He sent love into hatred. He sent light into darkness. He sent life into death. He sent peace into hostility. He sent truth into deception. He sent the Lord to serve the lost. He sent the Savior to be a sacrifice. He sent the lion and asked him to be the lamb. He sent God, actually sent for us. Love doesn't just sit still. It sends out. It pursues. It chases down. It rescues. It sacrifices. We didn't ask for him. We didn't think we needed him. In fact, according to the truth of the word of God, we all hated him. Paul says in Romans 1 that those who reject the gospel are haters of God. And then in chapter 5, he helps us see that even those who have embraced the gospel used to be enemies of God. And enemies could be translated as hating or being hostile. Part of our human depravity, part of our sin problem is a disposition towards hatred. And as a father, I simply can't even fathom the concept of sending my only son into an environment of hatred where he would bear the weight of all of that human depravity. Would you do that with your child? And yet, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners... What's the rest of the verse, brothers and sisters? Christ died for us. You might not like God's methods, 
You might not like that he's calling us into sacrificial living, that he calls us to this type of selfless love, this love that chases and pursues, that brings light to darkness and all that that costs us. You might not like his methodology, but at least, but at least he was a practitioner of his own methodology. He's not asking us to do anything that he didn't do himself. It's exactly what he did through his son. He proved he is love. The question for you simply this morning, for many of you, some of you certainly, is have you received this love through faith? Have you made that decision? Or have you embraced some other definition, some other way? Maybe you heard the, the story just a few days ago, I've certainly been following it, that Great Hammer and Hank Aaron died. My dad used to have some of his baseball cards and I remember I'd go into my dad's bedroom and he'd have all of his baseball cards kind of down in this secret space under blankets and I'd open up some of his binders, especially when he wasn't home and I wasn't supposed to be in there and I'd go through his binders and I'd come to the Hank Aaron section and so badly did I want to take some of those cards. <laughs> and I remember looking at his statistics and hearing my dad tell stories about watching him play and when he used to play Cleveland and some of the other teams around the area in the, in the Midwest. And he is the true home run king of Major League Baseball and arguably the greatest player of all time. He broke Babe Ruth's home run record, if you didn't know, in April of 1974. And in 1974, he set another record. He set the Guinness World Record for the most fan mail received in one year by any private citizen ever the most fan mail ever in one year's time. In that one year, the United States Postal Service sent him over 930,000 personally written notes, letters. That's more than 2,500 pieces every day. The craziest part of that story is around one third of what he got was hate mail. 850 personally written notes of hatred every single day. Here's just one example. I couldn't share others. Most of them were so inappropriate. They weren't even, I wouldn't have even been able to read them. But here's one. It's pretty, it's pretty intense. Dear Hank Aaron, retire or die. The Atlanta Braves will be moving around the country and I'll move with them. You'll be in Montreal June 5th through 7th. Will you die there? You'll be in Shea Stadium July 6th through 8th and in Philly July 9th to 11th. Then again, you'll be in Montreal and St. Louis in August. You will die in one of those games. I'll shoot you in one of them. Will I sneak a rifle into the upper deck or a 45 in the bleachers? I don't know yet, but you know you will die unless you retire. You've been up 2,000 more times than Babe Ruth and you're not half the player he was. You will not vandalize his record. See you later. He was asked how he felt after he broke that record. You remember what he said? I'm glad it's over. Years later, when he spoke about this experience, he said, all that hatred left a deep scar on me. And I bring up this whole illustration to make this point. Hatred always leaves scars. It always leaves scars. And in a very real and spiritual sense, the prophet Isaiah says, by his wounds, by his stripes, by his scars, 
you are healed. That's the cost of salvation. That is the cost of the cross. That is the cost of Christ. It is not cheap grace. Now the good news is that although our sin exposes the fact that we've all been children of the devil, through faith in Jesus, all the hatred that has been hidden in our hearts and made its way out of our hands, all that evil has been buried with Christ. It has been consumed by those scars so that we might live through him. That is why it's called good news. We often think about the rosy parts of the gospel. It's never rosy when we are confronted ultimately with its reality of confronting our sin. And so John says, if you have received this love of God, this agape of God, this sacrifice of God, this transformative power encounter with God through Christ, through faith, then what do you do? What should you do? He says, love one another. That's the evidence. That's the proof of genuine faith. Is the love of Christ personified in you? Do we love one another? Or are we just good at being civil and polite? <laughs> I've heard it said many times before, love the sinner, hate the sin. Maybe you've heard that expression. The problem with that expression, you know what it is when you say love the sinner, hate the sin, you're just assuming that everybody else out there is the sinner except for yourself. It's self-righteousness wrapped in a religious slogan. A better way to say it is love the sinner, hate your own sin. And as that love redeems you, as it redeemed John, that hatred for the Samaritans in your life will just eventually melt away and you'll be able to say, for God so loved. Genuine love is costly. The cross was not cheap. How do I understand and encounter God's love? It begins with the Father, it's personified in the Son, and finally, briefly, it's perfected through the Spirit. Look again at verse 11 then. He repeats the command, our, I'm sorry, he repeats our identity here. He repeats the indicative. Our identity is repeated, beloved. And then the rationale is repeated, if God so loved us. Then the command is repeated, we also ought to love one another. He's recapping, he's reviewing. And so what's the purpose? What's the outcome? No one has seen God, he says, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In John 15, we are commanded by Jesus to abide in his love, to live in it, to be immersed in it. And he promised to send us his spirit so that we could have help. The point is that we can't understand God's love. We can't encounter God's love and there's no way we could ever show God's love on our own. Just like we are completely dependent on the love of God to save us, we are completely dependent on the Holy Spirit of God to empower us to live like Jesus, to live this way. Why? And what's the purpose? Because the world can't physically see God but they can see us, they can see you. They're watching you and they're observing our love of one another. Let's not sit still, we're being sent out just like our Lord was. 
I just want to close with this brief story. My daughter, Leah, uh, all my kids, I love watching them just play their, their sports. She's into soccer. My son's into basketball. My youngest is into dance. And it's just, it's, it's just a, a gift as a parent. I'll put it that way. It's a gift to watch your children do something they love. And so when she plays soccer, you know, I just get so much joy out of that. And so sometimes come off the field and after some games or some practices, she'll say, Daddy, I just didn't feel like I played well today. And she'll be so discouraged because she, she missed it. She maybe didn't give it her all, or maybe she missed a goal that she should have scored, or she really messed up on defense and she's embarrassed by it, but she missed it. And sometimes it'll bring tears and sometimes just frustration. And I get to tell her in that moment, yeah, you missed it today, but I'll be there tomorrow. Maybe some of you have missed it with this whole thing. Maybe you've been in the season where you know in your heart and in your mind that hatred or those feelings of animosity towards people who oppose Christ has crossed over that line. It's not responding to them with sacrifice. It's responding to them with vitriol. Maybe it's even within this church family towards one another. And you've missed it. And the Holy Spirit's impressing upon your heart today. You've been loved by Christ with such a deep agape love. This expression, and that's the love we're to extend to others. But God is saying to you as well, you're my child. I love you. You got a game again tomorrow. I'll be there. Be who you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love of Christ. It began with you. It's perfected in us through the Spirit. And Father, I first want to pray for any individual who is joining us online, who is in this room physically, anyone who feels your Holy Spirit saying to them that they have defined love a different way, not your way, the world's way, their own way, some other religious way. And yet when we come to your word, we see it is defined in you, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a story of sacrifice. And we can receive it. And when we receive it through faith, it's a simple admission saying that we need it. That that's how we overcome sin. That our hatred has been paid for with scars. And when we make that confession, Lord, receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are truly forgiven, known as your children and meant to extend that love to the world. And certainly, Father, as you've commanded here in your word today, to one another, because by this, the world will know we are disciples. Help us to love like that. And even if we failed and even if we missed the target and even if we missed the whole goal, help us to remember that you've given us the grace to stand up and say again, you got a game, got a game tomorrow and I'll be there. I'm with you. So we give you all the praise, Father. We give you all the praise, Jesus. We give you all the praise, Spirit. Three in one, you are good. You are with us. We are recreated in your love. And so we worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. 
We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.